Ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. Over the years, Carte Blanche has done several investigations into alleged child sexual abuse at various elite boys' schools across the country. Our focus was primarily on several sports coaches who are either currently facing allegations of child grooming and sexual assault or have been prosecuted. One thing that was seen in all our investigations was the culture of secrecy that so often prevents victims from speaking out against their abusers. Masa Kekana sits down with Luke Lampracht from Women and Men Against Child Abuse to gain more insight into why pedophiles often choose aquatic sports to gain access to their young victims, what schools can do to ensure career pedophiles aren't able to move from one school to the next, and why parents should also guard themselves from being groomed. What is it about aquatic sports that makes it so vulnerable and susceptible to pedophile coaches? I wish I could actually identify why it is such a risk because then we could intervene. But there, there seems to be a couple of interlinking factors. Firstly, we know that there are a group of people called career offenders. So career offenders are people who choose jobs that give them access to children and then make a career of abusing children. And those, I mean, on average, three, four hundred children over the, the course of their lifespan. The second thing is that in order for children to be groomed, there's a very specific component of grooming called boundary violations. Now, when you are, for example, in locker rooms and you're training and children are doing on-deck dressing and undressing, there is a way of getting away with boundary violations within the context of specifically aquatics, but other sports as well, that you wouldn't get away with in other contexts. It seems to be a combination of the career offender and the kind of boundary violations that are almost inherent within the sport, which then allows for grooming to occur. You know, as we were talking about boundary violations and mm. just trying to figure out what it is about aquatic sports that makes it so susceptible to this kind of crime, we were speaking to Ian Livett earlier on, mm. and he said, you know, there's also the underwater element of it. What happens sure. underwater and it's unseen? So there's a couple of things related to aquatics. And the one thing we've got to be careful of is I was actually at a SASCOC conference where one of the professors who's a sports science professor, said something to the effect of he thinks that things like swimming and, and gymnastics are more susceptible because of the kind of clothing that is worn. Now, I'm very hesitant to say that because, number one, now we're victim-blaming because, you know, now it's because of what people are wearing that they get abused. But secondly, it's just simply a form of rationalization. Adults who find children sexually attractive are going to find children sexually attractive whether they're wearing a costume or whether they're in a full ball gap. The underwater element is widely known. So so the underwater element in terms of the way to get a advantage in the pool is, you know, you will grab someone's genitals under the water where no one can see. So there is that level of the underwater. But there's other components to it as well. For example, in the Parktown case, one of the initiations was boys having deep heat uh, rubbed on their genitals and penises. Now, when that was reported, it was never reported as a sexual assault. It was reported as something physical because of rampant homophobia. And these are boys touching 
boys. So there's all of these things that people use, and I think that there are more rationalizations that are excuses rather than reasons. Obviously, we need to look at the risk factors like underwater and make sure, for example, that coaches are not in the water with children or they are not promoting socially sanctioned deviants like grabbing people's penises to gain an advantage underwater. I mean, we do need to address those. Now, in the St. John's case, the alleged perpetrator was the wall climbing coach. Does mm. this mean that all school sports are fair game to pedophile coaches? There is no doubt. Career offenders choose jobs that give them access to children to whom they are sexually attracted. And we must call it for what it is. So if you look at the scouts, for example, they are in excess of 85 thousand charges in the US in scouts. If you look at the Catholic Church, if you look at gymnastics. So we must understand that anywhere where children are is a risk. So Luke, what should a child do if Mm. they are being touched inappropriately by a teacher or a coach? We need to create environments where children don't have to say no to adults. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to teach children to say no to adults. So we run around with these mythical child protection programs, like if an adult tries to touch you, you must say no, and then go tell someone, etc. Firstly, we as adults, we never even allow children to say no in a safe context. So you take your darling little child off to your mother-in-law, and your mother-in-law wants to kiss the child. Child looks, I don't want to kiss granny, so you better kiss your granny. So we kind of override children say no, even in safe context. So children should be able to say no to adults, even in safe contexts, when it relates to their personal boundaries. They need to learn to say no to those boundaries throughout their lifespan to any adult who crosses their personal boundaries. So if your child comes home and says, I think coach so-and-so is touching me in a weird way, Mm. at that point, what should a parent do? So the first thing is we have to make it clear to children what is expected of a professional in terms of a professional's behavior. There are boundaries in terms of professionals where they are allowed to do A, B, C, and D. And if they do anything other than that, you must tell me immediately. Now, you know, what do we want parents to do? Number one is that if it is a violation of a professional boundary, it is in the interest of the coach as well to be called out so that he can modify his behavior if it is not sexual. Then we need to have parents and children have a lot of courage around it because they're scared of ruining someone's career, they're scared that they're not going to be selected for the team, that they're going to be excluded. And, you know, parents want their children to have the best coaches and to do well in sport because then they rise to the top and get access to good schools, good universities, good jobs and get access to privilege via sport. So talking up against it it requires a lot of courage because you can lose things in it. So in all three schools that we're looking at here, you know, there's Gray's High School, St. Andrews and St. John's College. They were alerted. The schools were alerted about this inappropriate behavior. Mm. So what they should have done is they should have done what, what, what the law calls for. You report it. Now, you report it to social work agencies and you report it to the police to open an investigation into the circumstances that gave rise to the concern. So what people must understand that the mandatory reporting clauses in our law are there not to make someone guilty and ruin their career, etc. It's there to open a set of services and particularly to victims. That's the aim of it. Because it seems there's like a veil of secrecy with these schools as well, because with all three of these, 
these cases, all these teachers went on to other schools. Sure. Now, shouldn't those schools have been alerted about these previous complaints? To make it quite simple, generally they'll call them in and have a conversation and then they resign and uh, we can't say anything because it's their right to employment and we can't say anything about it because there was no finding. So what they should do is the following. When the allegation arises, you call them in for the disciplinary and charge them at the same time. If they then resign, you can make a finding. So when we intervene in schools and they phone me and say, what must I do? I say, when you call him in, have the disciplinary note ready. This is what you've been charged with. Here's the date of your disciplinary or performance management or whatever. Because if they then resign, there's an agreement that we can then complete that in your absence and then we can make a finding and then we can report it to SACE and SACE can hold an inquiry because SACE can then deregister them. In the case of David McKenzie, the mm. Independent Review Board found that there was evidence that demonstrates that quite unequivocally that he was grooming boys. Yes. What constitutes as grooming? So grooming is a, a process. So the first part of the process is children are singled out as favorites. So generally how they choose the children, in my experience, has been children who have some kind of challenge. You know, they square pegs in round holes. They're not quite fitting in. They're vulnerable. They don't have dads, that kind of thing. But secondly, the children who are going to be the next great elite sports person. So those are generally the two that are chosen. They then isolate them from other people. So they'll isolate them from their peers, from their parents, etc. And then they engage in boundary violations. Now, boundary violations can be things as simple as WhatsApping a child. I mean, we had a case in one of the smaller Western Cape towns where the coach will WhatsApp the boys and say, how are your legs after practice? But he's only WhatsApping five of them individually out of 22. And then the very dangerous one, the one that everybody needs to be aware of, is they engage in what are called taboo violations. So a taboo violation is these adults not only allow, they actively encourage, facilitate and participate with children in things that other adults would not allow them to do and are illegal. Biggest one is alcohol. Vaping is next. I had a swimming coach tell the kids he was coaching that vaping is good for them because it helps them breathe underwater. Pornography is a very big one. And then things like drugs, marijuana being, a, being another big one. So once that taboo violation has happened, that's what kind of cements the secrecy because the child at some level feels they've participated mm. in it. They then engage in testing behavior to test if the child's going to tell about the taboo violation. And if they don't tell, that child is then abused because they know that the secret will be kept. That secret then has a second component to it, and that is maintaining the secret. And if the children come to the point where they're starting to indicate that they're going to talk, that's when it starts becoming threats. Why do you think in the David McKenzie matter, no boys are prepared to testify against him? I think there are many, many disincentives to disclosing your abuse. If we just take the disincentives for males to disclose, one is rampant homophobia. The, the idea that, you know, because I was touched by a man, I'm going to catch gayness. I want to make it very, and I've actually been cross-examined on this exact thing in a case with a scoutmaster. Sexual preference being gay and sexual pathology are not the same thing. Gay people have sex with other gay people. They don't have sex with children. So homophobia is a big one. The second is what we call the vampire myth. Okay, So you go straight from being an abused child to being an offender because children who are sexually abused become abusers. Also not true. But that's another reason. So either you're seen as gay or you're seen as a potential pedophile. Thirdly, cowboys don't cry. Fourthly, in terms of these, these schools, 
is that code of secrecy is what keeps you in the in-group. And if you are going to betray the in-group, all the things that you would have access to in terms of old boy privilege is removed from you because you have outed the system. So you, you will have your privilege of participation to this boys club removed from you. How difficult is it to dispel that kind of a culture, that kind of a culture of secrecy, of snitches get stitches? In, in schools where there's boarding, it's extremely difficult. So I found it easier in non-boarding schools than in boarding schools. So boarding schools are total institutions. So total institution is an institution that tells you what time you wake up, when you bath, what you eat, when you eat, what you wear, when you wear, how you wear, where you go, where you don't go, etc. There is no sort of freedom of, of anything. So you, you get an institutionalization of them. And once you have that institutionalization, particularly in adolescence, because remember, the job of a teenager is to be okay enough with who they are now while they're working out who they're going to become. So it's a mixture of identity and belonging. And because you're in a total institution, particularly in a termly border scenario, you, your identity and belonging are totally attached to that school and that boarding. So if you remove it, what happens is you remove identity and, as I said earlier, the sense of belonging. So it is incredibly difficult to do. When you are like doing your desktop research and you're checking out a coach, mm. if there are rumours... Yes. And there were allegations before, like in the case of Dean Carlson. Mm. You know that this person has been arrested and convicted in another country, but there's nothing in your country, mm. South Africa. Mm. You should still take that as a red flag. Absolutely. In fact, it's more than that. So what should happen in the case of Sarah Carlson is the following. His conviction in, in Australia should be reported to Interpol. Interpol should inform our police because you remember he was deported back here. Yeah. Okay. So it should be reported here. He should then end up on our sex offender register and our registered people who, who are not suitable to work with children. That's what should happen. And then people should check those registers and not employ people who have criminal convictions of sexual offences against children. In the St. John's matter, mm. 15, there have been 15 complaints mm. thus far. Mm. What does that tell us about, one, the accused, mm. but also about the school? So we must remember that these guys are extremely clever. So... Any groomer first grooms the organization that employs them, then they groom the parents, then they groom the children. So you have to understand that this is a methodical thing where they set the entire system up for their needs. That was also picked up with, you know, just talking to the parents of Julia as well, mm. Julia's mom and uh, Thomas's dad, that they were wooed too. 100%. You must remember you can't get access to a child where you've got an involved parent. So it's impossible. So you have to groom the parent. And they generally do it by saying, your child is fantastic at this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, in fact, sometimes they use the word groom. So I'm going to groom them into the greatest climber or the greatest whatever. And Ben's, oh, yeah, no, that's fantastic. You know, my child's wonderful. And every, every parent wants to think their child's wonderful and is going to be the next great star. That's why you send them to these places. I think for me, one of the things we are not considering at the moment is the secondary victims. So we have got parents who are terribly, terribly victimized by these systems. And I think we, we need to be very careful about how we put things out in the world because people are very quick to blame parents. How did you not see this? How didn't you know? Why didn't you do it? You know, And we, we engage in this blaming of the parents because they were supposed to, by some miracle, know or they should have helped their child or their child. Why didn't their child turn to them, etc.? 
Anything you'd like to add? What I want to say to all male survivors is that if you need help with what you're feeling, what you're thinking, please come to us. We run a thing called the Mail Room, spelled M-A-L-E, and we can assist you, reach out to us. You don't have to tell us who you are, you don't have to tell us who, whatever, just come to us. If this thing is eating you like the cancer is, come talk to us, message us. And then if you want to go through the criminal system, us as women and men against child abuse, we will help you, we will support you through the system. Is the system complicated and difficult? Yes. But is it important? Yes. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms. <laughs>